Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. December 1st. Damn, in about, what, four weeks? It's going to be 2023. It's kind of funny. So on my calendar in my apartment, uh, my mom noticed it was that I, I, I had it on for the last three months, July 2020. And I, I've been making the joke that I think ever since 2020's happened, everything's kind of froze. You know, between the pandemic and the war in Ukraine and economic chaos, it's kind of like, it seems like 2020's the last year I've really counted, which I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But yeah, we're almost 2023 now. Isn't that, that's, that's going to be insane. But anyways, I hope everyone's Thursday is going well. Um, I think you guys have been noticing the last, I don't know, couple weeks that I've been putting the episodes out a little bit later. And I decided, you know, everyone does a morning episode. Why don't I do an episode at the end of the day? You know, you can listen to it on your commute home instead of your commute to work. You know, a lot happens during the day. So sometimes it's kind of nice to do that. So it was unintentional, but I've kind of actually realized I kind of like putting them out in the evening. So hopefully you guys do too. So anyways, um, breaking news, most important thing in the world is that Mary or not Mary. Yeah, I guess you could call him Mary, but Harry and Meghan are putting a documentary out on Netflix. It's coming soon. Maybe, maybe in time for the holidays. Oh, Meghan Markle and Harry, whatever his name is, most important people in the world. I am so glad this documentary is coming out. It's everything I needed in my life. Oh, God, no. But in all seriousness, who cares? Who cares? Like, Meghan Markle, I've heard she's kind of a nasty person, kind of a B, B-level actress. What is What perspective do people need to know? Harry used to wear Nazi uniforms at Halloween parties and, you know, kind of was somewhat of a disgrace. You know, they moved to the U.S., called their family racist, and now everyone wants to watch their documentary. Ugh. Yeah, you probably will not have me watching it. Uh, I, I've heard little pieces of Meghan Markle's podcast before, and that was enough for me. It's very luxury, and I don't like luxury. So anyways, uh, you will count me out. I'm sure it'll have a Rotten Tomatoes score of like 99 or something, going how everyone is. But anyways, uh, I want to start with this story as well before we get into the main main topics today. Uh, if you type in Kanye West or yay, now on Google, you get another light story about him. I mean, this guy's really having a moment. He's really having a moment. This one is that apparently he told Alex Jones that he likes Hitler. Um, you know, when the anti-Semitism couldn't get any worse, it always seems to with Kanye. So... Basically, he was on Alex Jones' show, I think, yesterday, Wednesday, and they were talking. I haven't watched it. I won't watch it. The article I read in Rolling Stone about it was enough, and the article, I sent it to a friend, and he read the first part. He's like, oh, God, and then he's like, by the end of the article, he's like, yeah, this hasn't gotten any better. Jeez, um, and it, it didn't get any better, but apparently they were talking, and Kanye was wearing a full face mask. looked very disturbing, and he was like, you know, I... I think people give Hitler a bad rap, something to that effect. And he's like, he built highways and blah, 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 and was productive. I guess he was productive, but not in a good way. But anyways, and then it gets into, Kanye says, I'm not going to let the Jews tell me who I like and don't like. And, you know, I I, I don't mind the Jews, but I also like the Nazis. The Nazis are good. I, I like Hitler. And then even Alex Jones looks shocked and they go to a commercial break. And I was, I was telling someone else, it's, it's never a good sign when Alex Jones seems like the reasonable one. This is a guy who thinks that the water turned frogs gay. So when he seems like the reasonable one, I think you're, you're up, a, up a creek without a paddle for sure. 
anyways, Kanye is it's it's part of it's depressing, it's terrifying, it's dangerous. You know, I don't know if this guy is just a one of the most anti-Semitic people in the U.S. ever, or if he's fairly anti-Semitic and just wants to get a rise out of people, so he likes to say crazy shit. I don't, I don't know, but it's dangerous. It's hurt, hurtful to a lot of people, and you just kind of go, I wish someone would just get this guy some help because clearly he needs some help. Again, I don't. Some people say, oh, it's his mental illness is why he's saying this. I, I know people with mental illness. You don't usually say you hate the Jews and you want to kill the Jews because you have mental illness, unless you probably are anti-Semitic. So, yeah, it's, it's troubling. People keep having Kanye on. I feel like people are just using him at this point. Like, even when Tucker had him on a few months ago, I just feel like no one should interview this guy. Don't, don't bring him on your shows. He's clearly breaking down. And this goes back to what I was saying yesterday as well. It's like, Everyone's focused on the Nick Fuentes thing going on, you know, going to Trump's dinner. But also, isn't it a bit concerning that Kanye was also at Trump's dinner and Trump thought it was a good idea to meet with Kanye when Kanye is saying this type of stuff? Looks like Kanye's running for president in 2024, so that's going to be fun. Hopefully he doesn't get any votes, but I'm sure there'll be some people that like what he's saying. I read the comments on Facebook on these Kanye articles, and there are people who either downplay his anti-Semitism or agree with it. There always are those people, but yeah, Kanye's, it's, it's getting to a point where it's, I think he's long past the point of no return. He's survived other scandals before. I think people have always loved his music. I've always loved his music, but it's getting to the point where I don't know if you can like listen to Kanye without people going like, why are you listening to this guy? You know, he's, he's problematic <laughs> to put it lightly. So yeah, every day there's something new about Kanye, but we will move on. We will move on. So first, the main the main thing I want to talk about is out of Madrid. It's not the fact that they lost uh, that the Spanish team lost to Japan today, which was irritating, controversial goal at the end. But anyways, I want to talk about a fairly troubling report out of Spain, and it's about letter bombs being sent to different political individuals, as well as the U.S. embassy and the Ukrainian embassy. A BBC article discusses how Spain had stepped up security after basically revealing a number of letter bombs had been sent to high-profile targets, including Pedro Sanchez, who is the prime minister. And I don't live there anymore, obviously, but I can just imagine that this has kind of created a heightened sense of fear, insecurity, uncertainty, all the fun. I heard that public areas, security's been tightened. They're also putting more, I guess they're putting higher scrutiny into the mail itself, checking that all this isn't sent again. So kind of sketchy to be completely honest and to go through some of the details the first report i saw came on wednesday when an employee of the ukrainian embassy in madrid was slightly injured when a device exploded i remember i saw that yesterday morning and i was going huh we're gonna have to see what happens here and then since i heard about that more has come up and then yesterday and today there were similar reports of packages sent to the defense minister as well as the american embassy the U.S. Embassy in Madrid confirmed that it, too, received one of these packages, and they thanked security services for dealing with it. And it's kind of interesting. And the article writes here in quotes, The Spanish government had earlier said that explosive devices had been sent to over five targets. It said an envelope containing pyrotechnic material had been sent to Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, but was intercepted on the 24th of November before anyone was hurt. This was said to be similar to packages sent to the Defense Ministry, a weapons manufacturer in Zaragoza, Torrejon Air Base, and to the Ukrainian Embassy in Madrid. So, fun stuff, right? And people are probably going, like, who the hell is sending this, right? Like, I mean, kind of weird. 
I, I know we've had some similar things like this happen in the U.S., and sometimes it's a disgruntled person. Usually it's a disgruntled person. Now, I think, though, since obviously the Ukrainian embassy was one of the places they sent one of these, I think the initial theory would make sense that people would assume Russia is responsible for these attacks, or I guess you could say attempted attacks, because Spain has been one of the countries that's been very supportive of the Ukrainian cause and has expressed solidarity with the Ukrainian people, blah, blah, blah. And it's no secret as well. We know the, the Russians are good at assassinating Russian-born people overseas, right? They always use that nerve agent. They've poisoned guys that are, that are dissidents in, like, the U.K. and stuff. So it would not really surprise me if, you know, the Russians have connections in, in Spain to do this. But I did also read that speculation for this Russia being involved theory or whatever you want to call it was fueled by reports that the weapons manufacturer, which received one of the bombs, had been making grenade launchers for the Ukrainian people. So, yeah, there's a few things. I don't know if there's a, a true cause to be linked with this yet. We will have to, you know, keep watching. But it is interesting when you see a, a string of letter bombs being sent to diplomats, embassies, leaders of a country. Never, never great news. And, of course, the Russians have put out a statement quite quickly, actually. And they've said these acts of terrorism are not their fault and they have no linkage to these bomb threats, blah, blah, blah. Now, that being said, I don't know what to trust out of Russia anymore. They've just to say lightly, haven't been too honest lately, or really in a long time, and so it wouldn't surprise me. But then again, like, Occam's Razor would tell me, like, would the Russians really want to start that type of conflict? I don't think so. I, I really don't think they would want to start that type of conflict, to be honest. They have, enough on, they have enough on their plate right now. Unrest inside the country, losing a war against Ukraine... Yeah, I don't know if they'd really want to get Spain involved, too, because that would obviously be Article 5 with NATO. So, which would, for those who forget, Article 5 would mean we'd go to war against them, all the NATO allies. I don't think Putin wants that. So, I also did read a press release from the Spanish government that noted that it seems like the packages have been sent from inside Spain. So, is this a Russian, a Spanish terrorist, a provocateur, a disillusioned nutcase? I don't know. We probably might not ever know. And if we do, I hope they get punished. But I'm glad no one's really been seriously hurt. Obviously, that's too bad one of the guys in the Ukrainian embassy was injured. But I'm glad no one's died. So that's, I guess, I guess silver lining, to say the least. Moving on to the next segment I want to talk about, let's move to another Spanish-speaking country, Venezuela. And... I, you know, we haven't talked about Venezuela in a while. I don't even know if on the new podcast we've talked about it ever. So, yeah, let's do it. So, apparently Joe Biden has started to lift sanctions on Venezuela. From my understanding, Chevron, which is obviously an American behemoth as a company. Apparently Chevron was granted a license to start pumping and exporting oil to the United States. And I, from my understanding, this is a limited license. But it still marks a pretty big change, especially after the Trump era, and prior to the Trump era, to be honest. And also in exchange for this deal, Nicolas Maduro's um, regime has agreed to resume talks with the opposition movement. Later, I'll get to why I still don't know if that's a big deal or not, because I don't really, I don't really consider Maduro a good faith actor. But anyways... Hopefully, we're going to have some sort of talks. Uh, I'm assuming that would be with the people like Juan Guaido, who is the United States' recognized leader of Venezuela, though he's really not. And anyways, America has also warned that it will restore sanctions if Maduro reneges on the deal, basically. So to give some background, 
I think we have to recognize that this agreement is not really because either side likes the other very much. It seems like it's mainly because the United States needs a new oil partner after the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, Russia has been pretty much kicked out of the world economy. And also, before we get into the details of this and why I don't think it's going to work, I still find it fascinating that the United States and Great Britain, for example, consider Juan Guaido the true leader or president of Venezuela. They first did this in 2019, right, when it actually looked like maybe that was true. And it was under the grounds that Nicolas Maduro had rigged an election, right, which he did. I think he did, but they were correct. And I don't really think Maduro's popular, but it seems like the problem was is that Guaido and his loyalists and his side kind of misjudged the loyalty that had been created by Chavez, but now Maduro has from the military's top leaders. Because remember, to have a coup or a a revolution or to overthrow someone like Maduro, you would need the top military officials and the military in general to side with you. And they didn't. And so Guaido really does not have a claim to power. I never really thought he did, even though I support him over Maduro. But I just thought it was kind of funny when we were always calling him the president. I'm like, Maduro's still leading the country. He still has control of the military. Guaido is kind of in hiding almost. I'm like, I don't see that being a thing. So also, the regime has been ruthless, which hasn't helped. So now it's a bit odd that in 2022, almost 2023, we still recognize Guaido as the leader when clearly he's not. So The Economist notes that Guaido is better described as one of the many opposition leaders in the country. And unfortunately, yeah, that's not a leader. That's just an opposition party leader, right? And also, it seems like his claims of election rigging are going to be whitewashed or just retconned out of memory because he once led the National Assembly, and I think that's why a lot of people thought that he would become the leader of the country, but that National Assembly no longer exists in its old form. It's been pretty much eroded from the inside out, and it's been replaced by one that Maduro and his loyalists have created. And also, Guaido is still in there, but he will end his term as leader in January. I think it's like early January. So it looks like things are not going great for him down the road. I don't know about you guys, but that just doesn't sound like a leader to me. Usually you need power and control of like the armed services to be a leader, at least in my definition of it. And you need a monopoly on force. And I don't think Guaido has any of those. So moving on to oil, though. One reason that Maduro has been able to consolidate even more power is that geopolitics have really swayed in Venezuela's favor. And I don't know if that's actually good down the road because we have to remember that Maduro's done a lot of human rights atrocities and it's kind of a depressing place right now. And due to oil and due to changing political dynamics in Latin America, Guaido is getting, I mean, not Guaido, sorry, Maduro is getting a second chance here. And it's going to be harder maybe to get rid of him. Not not saying we should do a coup, a coup d'etat, but... I don't know. It's complicated. And before the invasion of Ukraine, especially, it was really easy to isolate Venezuela, right? Especially European countries, the United States, etc. But it's easy to reconsider that move when oil prices are high and Saudi Arabia is not playing ball, for example. And obviously, Russia is definitely not playing ball. And reconsidering could help Maduro in the long run. The Economist writes here, in quotes, Venezuela sits on 20% of the world's uh, proven oil reserves more than any other country. The war in Ukraine has made everyone more nervous about oil supplies and therefore make the, made the cost of isolating Venezuela seem higher. 
After decades of mismanagement, Venezuela's oil industry is too run down to make much of a difference to global oil markets in the short term. But the United States and others are thinking about the long term. Long term's good. Look, we all like long term, right? But it does seem maybe a bit of wish casting, a bit of optimism that doesn't exist. Time will only tell. The Trump administration, I think, was too harsh on Venezuela. It put sanctions on banking, mining, and fuel, as well as regime elites and loyalists. As you guys are aware, if you've been listening to me for a while, I do not think sanctions work. Look how well they're working in Russia right now, right? Biden's administration, I do think, has started to cautiously, cautiously reevaluate its relations with Venezuela. And this has led to the Chevron deal, which I think is good, in a sense, because Chevron already has four dormant ventures with a Venezuela oil firm named PDVSA. I believe it's state-owned. And my understanding is that they wouldn't need to really create new infrastructure or open new facilities. They would just need to wake up these dormant ones, basically. And as I mentioned earlier, part of the agreement is that proceeds from this Chevron deal go towards debts that PDVSA owns. Maduro also must start talking, like I mentioned earlier, to the opposition and try to make some sort of compromise to create a healthier system in the country. I don't buy it, but, you know, one can hope. A guy can hope, to say the least. And I think the Trump, I don't know, I think the Trump administration just isolated Venezuela, made them a pariah, and did not really help anything particularly well. While I actually agreed with the Trump administration's rhetoric towards Venezuela, I just didn't see any like tangible outcomes with that. I would prefer talks instead of isolation. I always have. And, you know, they're... It's, it's interesting, though, to see Maduro's image slowly kind of, I don't want to say revitalized, but he's definitely getting more attention, and he's actually talking to people again, which that could be good, that could be bad. I don't particularly know, because apparently at the COP27 summit in Egypt that I talked about last week, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, France's president, and Maduro actually talked, which everyone's like, whoa, because I think France, if I recall correctly, is one of the countries that doesn't recognize Maduro as the president, which is always fun. And then also John Kerry and Maduro also talked, and I guess Kerry said he was surprised. John Kerry, you know, works for the Biden administration. So that was kind of a big deal as well, because, you know, the United States also doesn't recognize recognize um, Maduro as, as president. So it is kind of interesting when, you know, we talk about in the United States how Republicans don't give recognition that Biden's president, not all, but some Republicans say Biden's not the true president. But then you look at like how across the, like across the world, we kind of do that with leaders as well. You know, like clearly Maduro is the president, maybe not legitimately, but he is the president. And so it's always funny when, you know, we, we criticize our internal dynamics and kind of do the same thing abroad. So I don't know. Anyways, like, I think it's good that we're, you know, breaking down barriers like Macron and Maduro are meeting. But I do worry that this is maybe like a coming out tour for Maduro, which I don't know is particularly a good thing. And I don't know if he's facing the right punishment for his actions. Also, it's important to note that some of the major countries around Venezuela, like Colombia and Brazil, have elected more left-leaning politicians. And typically, left-wing governments are usually less hostile to the Maduro regime. Right-wing governments, for obvious reasons, would be because Maduro is kind of an autocratic socialist whatever you want to call him. I think more of just an autocrat, but it's, it, it'll be interesting to see if he gets more emboldened. 
I should also add that I am a bit hesitant about this venture in Venezuela with Chevron and whether it's actually going to work. From my understanding, Venezuelan oil is very difficult to refine, and it's costly to refine, and it's also quite dirty and heavy. So that means it takes a lot more input to actually make it work, make it get refined and ready. Um, the Economist also notes that in quotes, after years of mismanagement and corruption, much of the infrastructure of PDS, sorry, PDVSA is in ruins. Production this year is expected to average 650,000 barrels a day, a fraction of the government's own target of 2 million, and less than a fifth of its pre-Chavez output of around 3 million in 1998. So they're not starting on a great, on a great note. And I think that is something worth mentioning. Also, experts think it will take over a year for production to really take off, which I think should also be noted. And even if Venezuela were to produce 1 million barrels a day by 2025, that would only be about 1% of the current global production. <laughs> 1%, yep, not 10, 1%. Of course, that is again if the company can actually operate effectively, and I don't think at this time they can. Also, they would need a lot of foreign investment, which the Maduro regime is quite hostile towards and hesitant towards, because that's kind of what these Latin American leftist dictatorships do, is they're really all about like internal investment and state-owned companies. American investment is usually not their thing, but you do have to wonder, the economy has sunk by over 70% over the last decade, and obviously they need help, so you have to kind of wonder, like, when do they say, okay, maybe we do need some foreign investment? I don't particularly know, but as I talked about last week as well, basically, like, it's really hard for companies to invest in places that have these issues, so yeah. It's, it's just a big, big mess. Just a big mess. Now, I have two more things I want to talk about. Let's move, move on from Venezuela. So I don't think I've talked about our buddy Viktor Orban over in Hungary in a while. Maybe it's just because the world has been, I don't know, so crazy that we haven't got to talk about our liberal fascist friend in Hungary lately. I mean, it's just insane. Like, poor, poor world, you know. But yeah, it's kind of crazy between... Maybe the worst housing crisis in 40 years, inflation, oil prices, COVID, Ukraine, Trump. Sorry, we got a loud vehicle out there, always. It's always fun, you know, and you live on a street. <laughs> but anyways, um, I want to talk about Viktor Orban today because it's been a while. So he's the man, for those of you who have forgotten, I don't think it's easy to forget this guy, but he's the man who coined the term a liberal democracy. He says he wants to have a democracy without the liberalism part, basically, which I don't really know what democracy is without the liberalism part. But anyways, he's also a darling of the populist right in the United States. He hates gay people and trans people, so of course he's popular with them. And today I just wanted to briefly discuss a troubling Human Rights Watch report on how Orban's Fides party basically used COVID data for political purposes and broke a lot of Hungarian law, international law, EU guidelines. And basically it makes me pose the question of why the hell is Hungary still in the EU? Basically, there was a website for citizens to sign up for COVID vaccines, kind of like the U.S. has, kind of like a lot of countries have. And when you would go to sign up, I believe this was in early 2020, when you went to sign up, it included a place where you could, you know, check a box or tick a box, whatever you want to say, and put in your contact information, and they would give you details. The funny thing is, is that there's this guy whose name's escaping me. 
he was like, what details? Because it didn't say like vaccine details or it didn't say COVID details. It just said details. So he decided to check the box for himself. And then when he helped sign up his grandmother, he did not check her box. So you have two people. He wanted to see what am I going to receive from giving them my contact information. And months later, he started getting just a shit ton of emails right before a Fidesz election that Viktor Orban was in. And his grandmother got no emails. And he's going, I didn't know you could use my COVID and vaccine data to start sending me emails about an election. And The Economist writes here, a report published on December 1st, which is, oh, that's today, isn't it? By Human Rights Watch suggests that Fidesz seems to have gained access to state databases and used them to send uh, campaign messages to voters. In addition to emails, people got phone calls and text messages from Fidesz candidates urging them to vote and reminding them what a wonderful job the government was doing. Very dystopian, if you ask me. And I guess the bigger picture here is that, well, Viktor Orban's always watching. Big brother type of shit. And also, you know, it basically means that there are racing boundaries between the state and Fidesz, the party. And I don't know if you guys know much about um, problematic dictatorships and all that jazz, but usually when you start erasing the boundaries between the state and the party, it's dangerous for democracy. And I mean, I would argue that Hungary doesn't really have a democracy anymore. But whatever's left of it, this just tells me that when the state starts using people's data to pretty much send out propaganda to them and remind them to vote for the party, not great. Also, though, <laughs> abusing databases for campaign purposes does violate both EU and Hungarian law based on laws on data privacy, which is sensible. Now, I should note that actually in the United States, I used to work for campaigns and American politics is quite different because we actually had access to a lot of voter, voter data ourselves. Like, I could walk down the street when I was helping on GOTV um, campaigns. I could go on, you know, down the street and basically go like, oh, Deborah, Deborah Doe lives here. And I know her party, her age, the last time she voted and what she's doing. So, like, I mean, the US, there's questions in the U.S. about how much voter data we have and whether that's really ethical or I don't know. I mean, I guess it's legal. But the European Union actually rules out even some practices that are routine in American politics. And definitely what the Fides Party and Viktor Orban are doing are much further down that road. So that, again, makes me wonder, like, Hungary is basically violating everything the EU stands for. They steal elections. Viktor Orban is pretty much leader for life at this point. And he's become somewhat of a neo-fascist. Uh, he doesn't say it out loud, but he definitely loves Putin. And it's like, when does the EU boot this fool out? When does, like, the, I've been to Hungary multiple times. I love the country. It's beautiful. But it's not a safe place if you're not Hungarian, if you're an immigrant, if you're gay or trans. Women's rights have been stifled with. Um, Hungary's not a particularly safe place if you don't look white with blue eyes, basically. And so the question is, like, now they're using voter data to keep Viktor Orban in power. Maybe they should not be getting EU subsidies. That's my theory. Call me crazy. You can find me on Twitter, as always. But um, the last thing I want to talk about, we've been kind of all over the world today. I want to get back to the U.S. for a moment because Arizona, I want to know what they're drinking in Arizona. Usually when I ask that question, what are you drinking, it's because I want one. But whatever they're drinking in Arizona, I do not want to drink it because they the craziness in Arizona is kind of insane. It's like... 
every election lie, every audit, it gets exhausting. Like, everything crazy is happening in Arizona, it seems like, with elections. And the election happened almost a damn month ago now. And, you know, Carrie Lake is still putting out conspiracies. Mike Lindell's been there. By the way, Mike, Mike Lindell, I saw, is actually um, trying to run to be the chair of the, uh, the RNC, the Republican National Committee. I think that would be amazing if he did that. But anyways, Carrie Lake, you know, is still peddling conspiracies. And they're like, well, we'll still fight. It's like, dude, it's been three, almost four weeks now. Like, move on. You guys lost. I'm sorry. And, yeah, things are even getting more crazy because Reuters has an article that discusses how Republicans in one Arizona county are still refusing to certify election results. It sounds like deja vu. Honestly, it does. Like, I feel like we just live in a place where time is a circle. It, like, you know, Groundhog Day was a good movie, but I don't want to really be in it. Seems like our politics is Groundhog Day. So the article writes here in quotes, Republican officials who have embraced voter fraud theories resisted certifying the midterm election results in one Arizona county on Monday, defying a state deadline and setting the stage for a legal battle. In Cochise County, which is the one that is not certifying the election, it's a conservative stronghold in southeastern Arizona, and the two Republican members of the three-person board of supervisors voted to postpone certifying the election results. And... Now, a spokesperson for the Secretary of State for Arizona's office said that they would file a lawsuit. That's good. Look, the thing here is, is that I think this is dangerous because this is now a new, smaller-scale attempt to stop an election from being verified and pretty much just, like, fucking up, excuse my language, but just fucking up our electoral democratic process. And it's, again, another dress rehearsal for another way to try to steal an election in 2024. Like, what they're doing here is they're testing out any way possible to basically make it like, if we win, the election's good. If we lose, it was stolen. And that's a very anti-democratic, illiberal thing. That's what Viktor Orban, our buddy in Hungary, would do. And in 2020, they obviously tried to do it on a national level. But now it seems like they're going to try to do this more on a state or county level. And that's, that's troubling. Like, that is something troubling. Because Basically not certifying in this one county is another test for 2024. And of course, this one county is getting headlines, but other ones were slow to certify it. Other ones were slow to get this information out there. And no, n none of these people ever pay consequences. They never pay the price for this insanity. But like, look, Carrie Lake, I mean, I'm worried she's going to be Trump's running mate in 2024. She's a media star. She's, you know, she went from drag lunches to election denialism like she was one of those obama supporters who was a liberal local news gal who's just completely crazy and she's been stoking the flames here as well so arizona to me is always some kind of a place to watch what happens there is kind of a canary in the coal mine for me so it's not good that these election deny things are still happening basically but we'll watch them. Like I said, I also want to watch this Mike Lindell thing for him running for RNC chair because Ronna, what's her name, Ronna McDaniel, who literally took out her Romney part of her name. She's what, Romney's niece, I think. She literally changed that part of her name just to suck up to Trump. Like, the orange god king from Mar-a-Lago doesn't deserve sucking up to. I'm sorry. People are weak and feckless. But what can I say? Um... I just want to end the show by saying Christy McVie died yesterday. Uh, 
longtime member of Fleetwood Mac, one of my favorite groups. And, you know, she went from a super fan to part of the band to having, you know, she was, I think, married to the bassist and having affairs with another member. Like, she was kind of the the wild one in the group, (laughs) for sure. And she was the main singer, then Stevie Nicks joins, blah, blah, blah. I won't get into all the wonky stuff here, but, yeah, she died, and it was kind of of hit home seeing that, you know. She was singer, keyboardist, some of her songs, like, everywhere that's now in every commercial. It's literally everywhere right now. Um, you make loving fun was a good one, and yeah, it's it's sad. You know, it, it it makes me feel older. It does make me feel older that all these people I grew up listening to, just because my parents always exposed me to them, are all slowly dying. And you know, that kind of kind of makes you think about your mortality and life and everything. But luckily, her her sound is memorable. Go listen to some Fleetwood Mac, and I'll be back. In the words of Arnold. And uh, anyways, have a great rest of your evening. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, whatever else there is. I'm sure I forgot something. So, adios, hasta la vista, baby.